Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, an entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode. This is your moderator, Lubna Ali, and today I'll be leading a discussion titled Education and the City, where we talk about how city planning policies and processes, placemaking, and the built form is designed with education access as a second thought. Joining us today are French as a Second Language teacher candidate Austin Jaffrey, child and youth care practitioner Joy Henderson, and postdoctoral researcher in the Faculty of Education at York University, Dr. Behan Farhadi. Austin Jaffrey is a French second language teacher candidate for the secondary level. He is entering his final year of his FSL B.Ed. program at York University's Glendon campus. His interests include equity and social justice in FSL classrooms and programs. He is a research assistant for the Recruitment, Training, and Research Project for FSL Teaching in Ontario funded by Heritage Canada. He is also a community activist in Scarborough and does activism around education, equity, and transit. He is vice chair of Scarborough Families for Public Education and also a member of TTC Riders, Scarborough Transit Action, and Scarborough Civic Action Network. Joy Henderson is a mother of three and child and youth care practitioner. She has lived in Scarborough for 20 years and focuses her activism on education, Indigenous wellness, racial equity, children and youth, and building and connecting communities within Scarborough. Dr. Behan Farhadi is a postdoctoral researcher in the Faculty of Education at York University, a secondary teacher at the Toronto District School Board, and an alumni of the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. She researches educational policy, online learning, and inequality in secondary schools. As we enter the month of September and students, parents, and educators are among the leg that prepare to return to school after an almost seven-month closure, Ontarians have been watching Education Minister Stephen Lecce's and the Ford government's plans for reopening schools safely, also widely referred to as hashtag Save September. Concerns around mandatory masks, sanitization procedures, funding for new and laid-off teachers, and access to daycare and e-learning tools are some of the largest cited concerns. According to a recent poll by Ledger and the Association for Canadian Students, 59% of respondents with children said that they would send their kids to school if there is some type of classroom instruction at least a few days a week. But 18% said that they would keep children at home, while the remaining 23% said they didn't know. 41% of all respondents said that they would be more worried about personally contracted COVID-19 if schools reopen, while 48% said it did not change their fears either way. On the flip side, according to an updated Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board report released Monday, August 10th of this year, 15 student classes would require about 900 additional teachers at the cost of approximately $76 million. The province has thus far pledged $30 million for the hiring of additional teachers across all Ontario. 
On Wednesday, August 26th, the federal government stated that this was sending up to an additional $2 billion in provinces and territories for them to cover the extra cost of ensuring that students will be safe when the school year begins, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced on Wednesday. The money is being sent through a new safe-to-return class fund in two installments, a first portion of this fall and the second in early 2021. It will be distributed based on the number of students between ages 4 and 14 and 18 in each region, and the decision to split the funding to ensure the provinces and territories have support for the whole school year, according to Prime Minister's office. Beyond the amplified health concerns that this pandemic has brought forward, many other pre-existing systemic issues in the education system continue to be highlighted at drastic rates, racial inequality being one of them. According to a 2019 article titled Avoiding Racial Equity Detours by Dr. Paul Gorski, in schools committed to racial equity, educators who resist anti-racist measures should feel uneasy, isolated on the outskirts of their school's institutional cultures. He goes on to say, research shows that the inverse tends to be true in many schools, even when leaders claim equity commitment. Often the educators most adamant about racial equity are, the, are cast at the margins of institutional culture. They are the ones feeling isolated, wondering whether they belong. Hundreds of thousands of students are expected to take part in these walkouts right across the province. They, of course, are protesting cuts to education funding, while the Minister of Education says that they inherited a broken system and they need to make some tough decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has led to the largest disruption of education ever. The United Nations chief making a push to open schools after they were closed in some 160 countries last month, affecting more than one billion of the world's students. Even before the pandemic, the UN says over 250 million young people missed out on class. Now... We face a generational catastrophe. The UN says school closures caused by COVID-19 have undermined decades of progress for education and heightened entrenched inequalities. It's important for the children because of the psychological benefit and the children who rely on the breakfast and the lunches in school for proper nutrition. I guess to jump right into it. Do you think your school or district engages in any equity detours? And how might you re-examine such initiatives in light of uh, equity principles? And if you want to refer to Gorski's equity principles, then sure. If not, no worries at all. So... With my work, I think um, so much of it is about equity detours, um, especially because students who take online learning prior to the pandemic were self-selected. And so there were only like 5% of students taking it in the province. And that is consistent across jurisdictions in Canada. Um, students who take online learning tend to be concentrated, and, and I was mapping this in my own research, concentrated in um, richer, wider communities. And so with folks I interviewed, often I would say, well, here, here are the statistics around your program. What is your response? And I think um, two detours come to mind. One is the sense that this is about culture, right? So this is um, like they, they say, we don't know why certain students choose online learning. Um, and so what I tried to do in my work is try, it, it, you know, looked at the ways that online learning was used um, by often white middle-class students to gain, to sort of gain um, a foothold to accreditation, to, to, save time so they can take extracurriculars, 
that then give them that edge up. Um, the other piece was around, you know, deficit. So there is a sense that um, if you're taking online learning, you have to be a particular kind of student. And when I speak to people who are actually proponents of e-learning, I'm, I am not a proponent of online learning as it currently stands because it's been so marketized and used to cut funding to public education that I cannot um, in good conscience suggest that this is a good way to proceed. Um, but folks who do advocate for it will say that we shouldn't be thinking about students as not being able to do online learning because we don't talk about students in person saying that they cannot complete the coursework. But there is a huge gap between pass rates in the literature between students who complete their work in class and students who complete their work online. And so what I would I sort of say to that and bringing equity or thinking about this with equity is not about thinking um, in, in terms of spatially online learning versus offline learning. Online learning requires in-person support in order to support in order to ensure students succeed and in order to ensure that students have access to the kind of flexibility that's promised to um, the, the otherwise sort of select students who take it. Um, and so I've, you know, part of my work is making recommendations to ensure that online learning, if, if parents are choosing to do so, especially in this circumstance where it's often by necessity, um, that they are able to support the students who need it most. Okay, great. So. As Lubna mentioned, I'm a French as a second language teacher candidate. So throughout this podcast, I will be speaking a lot from the FSL lens. So just to clarify, when I keep saying FSL, which I will probably say it multiple times today, FSL refers to French as a second language. So that is French immersion, extended French, and core French in Ontario. So in terms of celebrating diversity detours, I find educators love using diversity day events, which is great, but diversity day is not racial justice and it's not anti-oppression. There are different things. Now in the French as a second language curriculum, a key component is intercultural awareness, which is awareness of one own culture and that of another. As a student who grew up taking extended French and now as a student teacher, I see teachers often give surface level assignments where they ask students to research a country in la francophonie, so francophone speaking country, and they ask students to write about its culture. So what are the food, music, religion, population, etc. This is great, however, it's very limited. Anti-oppression work in the classroom involved have been courageous sometimes uncomfortable conversations. It means going beyond at the surface level. In FSL projects, and now not all educators, but I find a lot of educators often leave out colonization and linguistic imperial imperialism. Why do we skip colonization? That's a great entry point to discuss and develop critical consciousness to analyze the word. When we show videos of children speaking French across the world, we need to ask students these questions. Why is this person in the video speaking French? How did this come to be? French is a colonial language. Why is this kid's or this child's narrative relevant to understanding some of the injustices or the lived experiences of this particular narrative? 
We must look at culture and diversity through an anti-oppressive, anti-racist lens, meaning that we need to ask some uncomfortable questions about legacies and histories of Francophone countries. We also need to deconstruct stereotypes and bias in media. It is not enough to ask students from a certain race or a certain religion to, you know, dress up in um, certain clothes that they may wear in their culture and come to school or to bring food from their culture and share it with their classmates. That it's not enough to do that. I like what you said, Austin, particularly about colonialization. And I guess when I think about it, um, I, as a parent and as a child and youth um, care practitioner, uh, my role in education basically is to try and get kids to fit into the curriculum. And so, and these kids are, you know, often acting out, uh, they're not sitting still in class, they're not necessarily, you know, quote unquote, behaving. So, and I think when I think of colonization, I just keep on coming back to, I guess, the fact that, you know, the curriculum and education in itself is very colonial. It's very violent towards um, Black and Indigenous students in particular. There's like, you know, there's a there's no surprise to me why this violent colonial system um, sees so many children who are Black and Indigenous in behavior classes, where so many white children are in gifted classes, often for similar behaviors. So, you know, the little white child is just bored, whereas the Black child is acting out because, you know, they're bad. And so it's... um. You know, I think education needs to have a serious um, self-examination. I know a lot of people are going through this, um, you know, equity movement to try and address um, an education. And many of the leaders are amazing. And I feel that hopeful that they are speaking out. I worry that a lot of it is performative because it doesn't, you know, it takes a long time to, uh, I guess, burn down colonialism, for lack of a better word. I don't even know if it has been done at all, right? So if it's possible. So um, I think that like for education and, you know, just in general, um, it's not a good place for Black or Indigenous students. And it's not a good place for people who want to challenge these structures. Because again, like as, you know, workers, we also deal with, um, you know, the clapback from like, being that person in a room who's always talking about equity, being that person in a room who's always bringing up microaggressions. And I'm often that person in the room and I'm like, oh my God, do I have to speak again? <laughs> and just to kind of feel that, you know, workplace tension, it's not good and it's certainly not healthy, not for workers or for students. I feel like all I of think... us are, in this, sorry, I was gonna say like, we're all, we're all that person in the room. I feel like that's what brings us here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Certainly, that's why we hang out. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, that's a equity literacy principle, isn't it? Or direct confrontation principle. You're not getting us, everybody. Yeah, I think um, a lot of um, you know programs. It's 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 unfortunate that it's so across the board that 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 is this is a narrative that you can find pretty much in any discipline and in any you know, thing that you can apply to just at a larger scale um, that, you know, you don't see people that, that look like me and you, you know, in positions of power or in places where we can find somebody to relate to. And that is why oftentimes you sort of draw are drawn to people who, you know, share similar experiences to you. And um, Joy, when you were talking about um, 
you know, um, always being the angry voice and always, you know, if you're disruptive, you know, when you bring these issues forward and when you talk about it, um, you know, I think people often forget that, you know, a large part of, you know, geographies of cities and city planning and being in city spaces is a social aspect like it's not just a built form of a city and where the buildings are placed and where the roads are like how residents feel there and how safe it is and how accessible it is and you know the relationships that you build there are integral part of what city building looks like and there is this concept that's uh called 880 cities i'm not sure if any of you're familiar with it but it is the notion that cities are built to be designed for with the with accessibility needs and with the minds of eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds in place. So it's accessible for anybody who's eight years old to walk down the street and somebody who's 80 years old as well. And socially as well, this you know concept can be applied to students. Eight-year-olds are students who are in school, typically. So um, I was actually going to draw on another article that um, I read about um, uh, Louisa Julius, who's a, a teacher at the TDSB, and some of the concerns that came forward about Julius's, um, you know, interactions um, with other students that were deemed, quote unquote, problematic um, for the sole purpose of, you know, not matching the needs of what the principal required or saw as um, fitting for anti-oppression and diversity work, although Julius's position was, you know, um, as such. Um, So some of the things that came forward was that Julius allegedly told a Black student that it was okay for Black students to use the Um, N-word, sent out a tweet that mentioned toxic masculinity and sparked a complaint to uh, superiors, and had numerous copies of an article titled White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack Beside Their Desk, and also allegedly told students that they don't have to stand during O Canada. Now, I think it's really interesting to talk about this because for most people who are in anti-oppression in the anti-oppression workspace and that are in a diversity space um this is sort of you know these are the conversations that we have and these this is the sort of the the you know going knowledge that you know you know the n-word is reserved just for black students and that you don't have to stand during oh canada because of the violent you know colonial history that canada produced or has like joy mentioned and same thing about you know teaching your students about white privilege so to that point um i think it would be interesting to talk about about this huge gap you know, and the barriers to teachers who are trying to implement safe spaces for their students um, and the, you know, the, the, you know, the barriers that they have to endure to get to that place. I'll go first this time, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess it's for me, it's like, again, because I'm, I'm an educator, I'm a CYC. So um, our labor is particularly um, precarious. And so, but I've worked in schools where we don't stand for all Canada, just as a matter of course. They were Indigenous schools within the TDSB. It was great. It was just something we just didn't do. They played it because we were part of a larger school building. But, you know, it was, uh, I wouldn't say completely decolonized education because we were still part of the TDSB, but our model looked very different. However, within the larger school system, you know, as a CYC, it's often very dangerous to speak up. And even if we do, you know, we're kind of thought as the underlings meant to kind of enforce the colonial system. And so we do as we're told, we're the foot soldiers. And, um, you know, 
saying like no this is violent this is racist and i know like cyc's have been saying this for like decades now and it just seems like finally like the rest of the school system is starting to catch up because we're kind of on the front lines of bearing and um enforcing you know these colonial systems and many of us don't want to do it many of us of course are battling with their own um labor precarity um in that system and you know, many of us are actually racialized. We're, um, you know, so again, you know, it's no, it's telling to me that like, you know, that the people who are racialized and, you know, meant as the foot soldiers um, aren't typically the ones who are listened to, like the EAs and the, um, you know, ECEs, the CYWs, um, that sort of thing. So, um I mean, I know um, Julius and so and they're really awesome. And so I was really happy when they told their story. And unfortunately, it's one that we just hear too often. And I'm, I'm tired of it, to be honest, and I would love it to end. But, you know, Rome wasn't burnt down in a day, but we're, we're plugging at it, I guess. Think about um, the importance of having accountability and the power that one principle had over... Like, I'm just, I think about Julius and their use of the invisible knapsack and, and that that was problematic. Like, I was, that was my reading material as a teacher in training in, like, 10, like, 2000. So I'm sitting there going, what kind of accountability is there for administrators who clearly are out of their depth when it comes to racist education? And um, what recourse is there for, as Joy was mentioning, um, vulnerable education workers? Well, I, I just wanted to, to comment on that was as a teacher candidate, I'm always scared. Like, I, first of all, I, and I'll talk about this later on, is that I'm one of the rare BIPOC racialized teacher candidates in my program. Most people in my program becoming teachers are white and of the middle class. So for me, I'm that guy who's always speaking up about equity and social justice. And I'm very lucky to have professors who have my back and who amplify my voice and let me speak my truth. I'm very fortunate to have them in our program. And that to me is shocking, the whole white privilege in the knapsack, because in my program, we talk about white privilege, white supremacy, microaggressions. We talk about all this stuff all the time. But I wanted to share a bit of my experience. So as you know, I am currently working on the FSL teacher recruitment and retention project at Glendon. And mind you, I'm the only person of color on my team. So what I want to share is that my team is responsible to promote French teaching careers to grade 11 and 12 students. So I shared that um, the students at my placement I shared about their experiences, and I'll talk more about this later. I shared that they did not like learning French because all they did was read Eurocentric texts from the 1900s that weren't relevant to them, and they memorized grammar. So many of them did not like French. When I asked my grade 12s who's going to continue in French after high school, they literally, I'm not kidding, they laughed in my face. <laughs> and I was heartbroken to hear that the students were upset and that they weren't continuing with French because I love French. It is a huge part of my identity. And this is exactly what Paul Gorski, Dr. Paul Gorski, talks about in his article, where often educators are reluctant to have these conversations. This is where he writes, educators of color 
who raise these concerns tend to face greater hostility, as Coley documented through the narratives of racial justice-oriented teachers of colors. These teachers are often labeled militant or angry for telling the racial equity truth. So in this project, my white colleagues had nothing to say. No one backed me up, and I just felt hurt that I was I was basically being shut down by expressing the concern of my students uh, who came from a school where it's largely racialized students from working class families. I spoke about them and instead my colleague um, told me that I need a growth mindset even though I said that how can you encourage students be to become French teachers if they didn't like their experience in immersion? It's not about insulting my colleagues, rather it's about having a conversation on how we can improve French immersion programs, and I will speak to that later on. Preach, Austin. Preach. <laughs> and so it just it reminded me, because um, Behan and Austin know this, right? But as I was going through university, it just how much and how insidious it is within our own professions and our, our educators teaching us our programs. And so I was asked to defend colonialism and a thesis essay um, from my professor and went through a whole equity process with Ryerson University. And might I add, like, you know, the whole you know, irony that, you know, I'm going to a school named after the man who engineered a residential school system. But, you know, we are like sending people to these institutions where the professors are racist. And you know, I was assured by Ryerson, you know, because I made an equity complaint and that she was going to resign and she did not in the end. And so and we have these programs run by white people who, you know, are forming our thoughts and um, the making the narrative for us to learn um, about these issues about, and around children, many of whom are racialized and are harmed under like colonial education as is. So there isn't any movement from the top down on how we're thinking and how we're learning and how we're teaching or handling um, the young people that we work with. Um, I actually think it's interesting, like as you folks have been speaking, I've been reflecting on my own experiences with, um, you know, the education system. And I myself, I was in a specialized program. I was in uh, the French extended program. And I never thought about, you know, Austin's comment about how, you know, streaming into applied or into or kicking students out of a specialized programs or even the application vetting process for, you know, gifted programs or whatnot. Um you know, is inherently racist. And, you know, the fact that they look at where what schools get these programs. So my sisters, both of them were also in the IB programs, international bac baccalaureate programs. And there is a cap, um, a, like a zoning cap or like a distance cap for how far away from the school you live um, and how and if you're um, if you're able to apply to the program. So for me at the time, I lucked out because um, we were living in an address that was close to a school that was offering the French program. But we moved later on um, and our distance didn't meet it. But because of previously being there, they didn't say anything. But, you know, for other students, I'm sure this is another major issue in terms of what schools get access, what neighborhoods get the specialized programs, and how does that, you know, 
um, sideline those interests. What schools get, you know, have to commute longer by bus or bus services poorer or slower in those areas to get to school on time? And how does this affect what students can stay back for extracurricular programs or come early in the mornings? Like for myself, um, I was lucky enough to have parents that could drive me to school for 7 a.m. practice um, for choir for four years straight. I did that. And I also stayed after school until, you know, 5 p.m. or later sometimes for other extracurricular activities, which other students and I learned this a lot in my high in my university experience as a commuter, you know, you have to pick and choose your battles and you don't have access to certain, you know, programming or timeframes for, you know, you know, concerns over managing work life and school life and extracurriculars and personal problems. And so I just think it's really interesting um, when you talk about um, school uh, from that sense and how they mirror teachers that come into those neighborhoods and their experiences. And even yet when they put in, you know, QT BIPOC uh, teachers, they still are met with um, backlash from their communities. No, let's rant about specialized schools. (laughs) I love it. I have a lot of feelings about specialized schools. Okay, so I'd love to hear that. I think you're vibrating because I hate specialized schools. Like with a, it is honestly, I, I feel like it is a racist program, and it's just you know anyone who is even just mildly familiar with equity, you know, can point out as many of the points that you had brought up, Lebna. Like it's just like it's inaccessible to so many students. And I was in a conversation with an incoming principal for a specialized program um, that focuses around athletics. And he's very interested to see and understand the barriers of his own school um, holds. But I'm like, for example, you know, to get into an athletic program, the student needs to be involved in extracurricular sports. And so, and my own child plays a relatively cheap sport in the terms of, you know, the expensive, um, the expenses within the sports extracurriculars. But even then, it's still thousands of dollars a year, which automatically rules out so many students. Um, the applications alone, you know, there's very little accessibility in terms of for, you know, parents um, who don't understand the process. Like I'm trying to figure out how it's going to happen in COVID because it involves basically touring around high school, sending in applications and resumes for like these 13 year olds, you know, to get into RH King's like leadership program. Like it was ridiculous. Just the hoops that these students have to jump through and if their parents are busy working and trying to survive it automatically cuts off a lot of the opportunities that these students have you know same with Wexford which is an arts-based program or um you know, again, just like a, a Birchmount, which is a sports-based program. Uh, my son, he applied to SATEC, and so, and that was probably the least rigorous, but, you know, um, he still had to go and take a test, and, you know, we had to pay $10, and it was just like a, and we had to take this time out of our day to do so, and all these applications have to be hand-delivered during the school day, like, even that is a barrier, and it just, it makes me itch like I cannot deal with these specialized programs and I they are the bane of my existence I wish the TDSB would just get rid of them because they're just like you know completely inequitable and the people who are usually lobbying for them are rich white parents whose kids go to specialized art schools so I'll digress for now but yes that is you know I have multiple feelings about that 
I also have feelings about that because I'm a secondary teacher in a specialized school. And my goodness, the silence in the virtual room when I made mention of this point um, was interesting uh, because this the school, the art school that I um, that I teach at clearly had divisions even within the school. So you knew who was an art student. Um, and as much as they tried to make it equitable, the fact that, as Joy was mentioning, all of these barriers to access, like how you have to get training in order to sort of put together a portfolio so that you can apply for a dance program. Um, these kinds of like very specific cultural competencies that only privilege a kind of expression which is like which is bound to whiteness so like I, I part of my frustration is we are especially these some of the specialized schools are I mean these are culturally based when you're talking about French as a second language as Austin was pointing out so articulately like it's so much about a particular kind of imagination when we think about French um, when we're thinking about specialized schools and we're thinking about art schools as a particular kind of expression of arts um, that really does exclude the people that make up Canada, right? So um, I think, yeah, like I, and, and that's, and, you know, Lovna, as you're pointing out, like to have to take a bus to access so many of these schools, there's one in Scarborough, um, and then there's like, I think three, two in the, in the core, uh, like in downtown and there's one in the West end and, um, they try to, they try to, to redistribute that funding, another equity principle. And, and that hit um, a lot of nerves and there's nothing that speaks more volumes about the public education system than, as Joy mentioned, white parents coming down on the system. The system is designed to maintain its privilege and it's designed to respond to white parents whose needs must be met. Otherwise, we don't want them taking their kids out of the system. But since, because they have a choice, but students who are racialized, um, a disproportionate number of whom are concentrated in low-income communities don't have that choice so this is so much like about the intersections of class and race and, and access to like the kinds of schoolings that are, that are in proximity like where you live um it's absolutely like it gets it gets to me and um unless we're willing to to focus our investments on like put our money where our mouth is like speaking about equity does nothing um if they're just platitudes i totally agree with van and joy on that um growing up i grew up in poverty um i grew up in malvern which is a lower income area in scarborough and i went to an extended french school which was not my home school it was agent court collegiate which is in a more middle class area of scarborough and i had to take the bus every single day and it was packed all the time coming from Malvern. And even if I'd be, you know, two minutes late, 
some of my teachers would punish me for being late. And I would try to explain to them, well, I have to wait for three buses to pass my bus stop before I can even get on an 85. And they're responsibly like, well, get on the earlier bus. So that is definitely a barrier for me and for other students as well to access these specialized programs. And specialized programs, I have a lot to say about French immersion and the elitism of it, but I will leave those thoughts towards the end for your other questions. Hi, I wanted to jump in a bit, and this is, this is very interesting, you know, like talking about all of this transport-related pollution. I wanted to talk a bit about income inequality. So in Toronto, where income inequality is the highest in Canada, wealth and test scores at Canada's largest school boards are related. So data obtained from the Education Quality and Accountability Office and 2010 income data from Statistics Canada show this divergence quite clearly. High-scoring elementary schools are primarily concentrated in high-income areas and vice versa. In lower-income neighborhoods, a higher percentage of students fail the reading, writing, and math tests. Schools in lower-income neighborhoods have a higher proportion of students failing the provincial standardized tests. So additionally, a 2010 Toronto District School Board study showed that the majority of students identified as gifted were from the affluent neighborhoods of the city. When it comes to gifted students, nearly 60% come from the three highest in income deciles. Finally, a quarter came from the very highest income group and only 11% were from the three lowest deciles. The study also finds that those children identified with a language impairment or a development disability were more likely to come from lower income neighborhoods. I'm, I'm an outsider to the uh, Canadian education system. Back where I grew up in Pakistan, schools are pretty randomly located. So if you have any insights regarding, you know, like this, this, these locations for schools, uh, I know, I know some of you touched on that already. Well, I, I want to complicate it a little bit. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what folks have to say. Like when I was doing work with online learning, do you think that it's like, online, like having access to online learning means that it doesn't matter where you're coming in from, right? Like you can kind of, access it from anywhere in the city but when you when I was mapping the concentration of online learning students um, against I don't you all must be familiar with David Hochansky's work where he mapped um, the racial and class segregation of residents in Toronto and titled it three cities within Toronto and it fell like it was it was concentrated in areas where you basically have um, specialized schools. So even were we to remove the barrier of transportation, I wonder all of these other barriers to access these uh, to access specialized programs um, are still there uh, and and the cultural competencies that you require to access it are still there. And you know it is absolutely about proximity. Um, but we also have to ensure that programming reflects the realities and affirms the life experiences and cultures of students that are coming into into the system. I had I remember I had interviewed a black student um, who was in a school with a specialized program that she actually got an invitation to, and she refused it because she knew that she would they she would be one of the few black students in that program. And decided that it wasn't worth um, the kind of microaggressions that Austin Austin was speaking to. So even once you get access, um, you know, I'm thinking about the kinds of violence that take place in these programs that 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 harms students um, and and 
and what it means to um, look at it, not just about access, but also about like the composition of the program, which I think is why Joy was, you know, talking about and, and you know, burning it down in a sense, right? Like, or, or completely dismantling it. I don't know that that specialized programs, um, maybe it's a, it's a like, you know, hot opinion or something, but I really don't think that they should exist. I think, I mean, for me, it's like, kind of addressing how we look at education, like, for example, how we look at gifted students. Is gifted only determined in one certain way? Um, and of course, you know, as Behan touched on, it's like, who is determining who is gifted, who is specialized, who is, you know, is it white people? Is it white psychologists and principals and administrators and teachers? Of course, you know, if they're not like at all like instructed or embrace like anti-oppression, they don't embrace that or equity values, then, you know, they're not necessarily even viewing, um, you know, um, Black, Indigenous, you know, students as, you know, worthy of their giftedness. Um, I, too, grew up in a low-income area. I grew up in Regent Park. And so, and back in the day, we didn't necessarily have specialized schools, but we had schools that were, like, you know, geared towards basic, um, general, and academic. And so I went to an academic school and you know, um, when me and Austin share our stories of high school, it's very similar in that, like, you know, I had to take, you know, transportation to get there. The teachers were pretty cruel, to be honest. As were the students, I was immediately labeled as the thug. And, you know, many of my teachers dismissed me. So, you know, and again, uh, you know, somehow magically me and another um, student within Regent Park, I think we were featured in an article, we were both offered scholarships to go to a private school. And we both knew, and this was even long before we had the, you know, language of microaggressions. And, you know, even before we were talking about equity in schools, where this thing was all just in its infancy, we both knew to turn it down because we knew that the violence we were going to get at this private school was already going to be too much and that, you know, even though we were both going to schools that were still quite violent to us, it was, I guess, the violence that we knew. So I don't per se, I think more so it's an equity issue. I mean, I just my instincts telling me as opposed to geography, because, you know, the students, you can have the access, but if the teachers are, you know, in the education system are still violent towards these students, it really doesn't matter as far as I can see. Uh, maybe Austin, you can, you know, elaborate some more or, you know, go a different direction. Oh my gosh, there's so much I want to say. Um, when I went to Agent Court, actually, it's interesting because I came from Emily Carr Public School. So that's a school at Morningside and Shepherd. And there were about 10 of us who came from that school. And we were the, that was the very first time that Emily Carr was a feeder school to Agent Court because most of the students at Agent Court came from Sir Alexander Mackenzie across the street. So everyone knew each other and we were kind of the outsiders. And I remember in grade nine, I would get into, um, I got into an argument with people because they did not want me or my best friend who was black. They did not want us to be partners in the group, sorry, members of their group project because they literally told us we are from the ghetto Malvern school and we will bring down their marks. That's what they've told us. And the teachers didn't do anything about it. Um, we did have to work with them, but we faced racist microaggressions because we were, you know, I, the black and brown kids from Malvern and we were ghetto and we were not smart enough to be there and to be in their group. 
Also, I used to run the African Caribbean Club. I was an executive member of the African Caribbean Club at Agent Court. And I remember other students, um, particularly some Asian and white students at that school, would call it the Ratchet Twerking Club. <laughs> and they thought that when we were um, preparing the Black History Month assembly that, you know, we would go on stage and start twerking. So, like, it's ridiculous. It's the racism that Black students in particular have to deal with at school, especially in specialized schools. And so I guess that's kind of my experience going to a school that was not in my neighborhood and kind of being, you know, a minority there, I guess you could say. I can't think of another word. But I know Behan has talked a lot about the lack of access to specialty programs. But I kind of wanted to shift gears a bit and talk about um, access to teachers college because I find there isn't much or really any discussion about who becomes a teacher if that's okay with you all yep go for it all right so I think uh, well first I want to speak to my experience at the faculty of education because like I said I don't think there's much conversation around teacher candidates but there is a serious lack of racialized BIPOC representation in teacher candidates. Most of the people in my program in the FSLBR are white females, and this speaks volumes to our FSL programs, our specialized programs, in terms of who it was designed for, who it benefits, and who is excluded from specialized programs. It also speaks volumes to the barriers to get into teachers' college. And this is something that Behan and I talked about a while ago, and and it I, I want to thank her for bringing that up because it reminded me of this. I'll give an example of a white female from a middle class home in my program. Her parents funded her own dance studio and she is a dance instructor. So she has that experience to put on her application to help her get into teachers college. But what about folks from working class homes who want to become a teacher, but they have to work part time or multiple jobs or take care of their siblings to help their parent, parents or guardians keep a roof over their head? They don't have the privilege nor the time to be a dance instructor or to get private dance lessons growing up to become a dance instructor to get that experience to put on their teaching application for the concurrent program. So. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about also the the racism I've dealt with being one of the rare racialized teacher candidates in this program. One white female in my program, and we want to talk about cities, she's from King City, which we know is a wealthy area. And she told me how kids in Ontario are dumb and falling behind compared to her home country in Hungary. She bragged about how her mom put her and her sister in Kumon for tutoring. And I'm thinking, well, not everyone can afford private tutoring. My parents couldn't afford it. Well, I mean my grandmother because I grew up with her, my single grandmother. This girl in my program told me how she will work tooth and nail to put her kids in private school. A couple months later, she made comments that her placement school in the TDSB, she said that it's ghetto and she's worried about getting shot. Now, her school is in an area with a heavy racialized population. And what really bothered me was in December of last year, when for one of our courses, her and her white friend, so the dance instructor, they made a dance hall tutorial video for their final project for the course. So 
she can make these racist comments about, you know, black and racialized people, but then steal the Caribbean culture because it's cool to her. Another white teacher candidate talking about Caribbean. Another white teacher candidate asked me to speak Caribbean for them. I didn't know that Caribbean was a language. And just for context, I'm Guyanese. I'm Indo-Caribbean. So many of these folks in my program, they are super privileged and they come from well-off families. There's a handful of POC and four black teacher candidates in my program, two of whom are francophone. In other words, again, overrepresentation of middle-class white folks. And students, they need to see themselves represented in their teachers and in their curriculum, which I'll speak more about in a bit. These folks that I mentioned do not represent the diverse communities in the city of Toronto. If they're making comments about schools being ghetto and being scared of getting shot, and then, you know, they're working in these schools with vulnerable BIPOC communities, I can only imagine all the harm that they're doing to our students. So my question is, why and how do the faculties of education let racist folks like these become teachers? I think they're super problematic. They will continue to enforce white supremacy, colonialism, and racism in education. In fact, I take a quote from Kike Ojo Thompson from the Four Big Questions on Racial Justice series that I attended this summer. And she said that racist educators need to be shown the door. And I couldn't agree more. I'm 100% for it. They need to be shown the door. And I think faculties of education need to make mandatory equity-related questions or do some sort of equity screening or something before allowing these people to become teachers. And they also need to remove the barriers that it is to become teachers because we need more um, racialized teachers who are willing to commit to undoing the harm and the white supremacy in our education system. Can add a quick comment to that because like we know that we know that black students who have one black teacher are more likely to go to college indigenous students who have teachers who reflect the dignity of their culture and experience are more likely to succeed and um part of the work the equity work is putting in the accountability pieces and ensuring that we're recruiting, retaining, and um, promoting racialized educators uh, so that Austin is not the only racialized educator in his, like in his, or one of the few in his program, um, particularly, you know, for subject areas that are predominantly whiter. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that we, you know, when we think about teaching from, you know, the change needs to happen sort of from, from bottom to top and top to bottom. And what I appreciate is that we're all sort of like coming at the space, um, doing advocacy work in those different areas and are able to sort of um, see systemically some of the areas that um, policy and changes and practice can improve. To your, uh, the statistics that you shared about um, Black students and Indigenous students being more likely to go to college if they have a teacher, um, that is also the same. Um, I think it's really interesting when you talk about that and also joy, because I can I can relate to that myself in the sense that a lot of course material previously, um, especially when I was in elementary school, middle school, and even high school, I, I didn't relate to it, or especially in history class, 
learning about, you know, the bread, the British and the French and how they came and colonized, or I guess, you know, they framed it differently. They said that, you know, they fought for Canada when really that was not the truth of what happened. It wasn't until I got to university and I had a chance to really pick my courses and, you know, find a home in at UTSC with some of the people that you know, had the similar research interests to myself and looked like me and had similar lived experiences to me was when I actually saw myself enjoying doing readings or course material or having those discussions or learning about those topics. And for me, even the thought of, you know, pursuing higher education at one point, especially when I was younger, was so far off from what I wanted for myself in the sense of it's going to be such a long, treacherous path and I'm not going to enjoy the material and I'm just forcing myself to do it because I need to make money and that's what my mom's forcing me to do. Like, you know, once I found joy in the work that I was studying and the work that I was doing, um, because of the fact that I found professors who cared about me, who looked like me, who were able to mentor me and, you know, talk to me, not just about, you know, handing an assignment, but about my personal life, that's when I truly felt, you know, that motivation and that encouragement to continue on um, and to even see myself later on possibly even pursuing, you know, PhD level. You know, it's really key to not forget that the mirroring those experiences is really, really important. And I did want to um, touch on the Indigenous curriculum. I'm not sure if, Joy, you have some opinions about it, because when I was in um, high school, Indigenous studies was not really a center focus of our studies. And um, we didn't have an Indigenous curriculum, really, and I didn't learn Indigenous history. And I know that my sister, who is part of DDSB, um, she is learning Indigenous history now. I know my cousin, who's also part of TDSB, uh, she's much younger than I am. And she is also, um, you know, they are learning that curriculum. But I also still worry about how the narrative is being framed. And um, I'm not sure if you have any uh, thoughts on the current curriculum for studies on Indigenous issues, I just, I saw a, a, a quote or a comment the other day that I thought was really, really interesting. And it goes uh, something along the lines of, white privilege is your history being part of the core curriculum and mine being taught as an elective. And um, boy, oh boy, isn't that true? Yeah, um, it certainly is. I mean, what I generally think is like, what curriculum? <laughs> so I recall in Ontario, one of the first things Doug Ford did once he came to power was he axed an Indigenous curriculum that, you know, people were coming together to build to be taught from K to grade 12, which is actually outlined in the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission calls to action report that everyone loves to scream about well, largely white people. But the fact of the matter is that there is, again, it's an elective, right? Like, you know, it's not mandated. My kids, you know, they've gone through the same elementary school and they have the same history teacher and they do the same projects on the War of 1812. I swear to God, he spends an entire semester on the War of 1812. I I don't understand how or why many things, you know, could be taught, but educators are not electing to. Um, they're not proactively kind of researching, you know, how they can incorporate it in their curriculum. Some are, for sure. Like I've advised um, several this summer just on where to find resources and how to, you know, treat items respectfully, like, you know, and not necessarily, oh, here's your Indigenous curriculum, let's build a dream catcher sort of thing. Or, you know, here's a drum, like I, you know, bought a drum. Um, and these artifacts, of course, have their important meanings and care and ritual around them. So it's not enough to just simply do a performative, like, not to Indigenous studies and curriculum. And 
as a parent, a lot of that teaching comes upon me. Teach my children like, okay, John A. McDonald, he was a genocidal, you know, jerk who, you know, starved out our people and the um, particularly the prairies, you know, you know, had a role in residential schools who had a role in the RCMP removing people from their lands. So there isn't much of an indigenous curriculum that I can speak to in a positive light. I find that what is being done is often being taken upon by individual educators who are making that effort to incorporate that and incorporating like the original population of Turtle Island and you know and how we were largely slaughtered and you know, had a genocide enacted upon us in order to build what is we now call as Canada and the fact that we are all but erased from history and schools is you know it's horrifying and so and I know you know again props to a lot of indigenous activists who are like you know trying to change that but it, it goes all the way up it goes into who educates the educators like I said I have my current program for the university CYC is run by a white woman who quote-unquote studies indigenous people but it's very problematic who rehired a professor who asked an indigenous student to um, defend colonialism so we have a problem you know that is system-wide and so in addition to a curriculum actually being there we need to get into the hearts and minds of educators and let them know like what uh, is to actually teach and embrace um, decolonial I guess for lack of a better word decolonial education and, you know, incorporate Indigenous studies and Indigenous people in the conversations and the education system as a whole. I think that's a great point that you bring up. Something else that kind of segueing off of that, I know, Austin, you were saying you wanted to discuss how we can kind of improve the French immersion curriculum. I have a lot of opinions on this. I took French immersion from um, grade one to grade 12. And just for some context, I grew up in a very, like, very rural white town. But even so, I started in grade one. Um, there was like two full classes for French immersion. There's like about 65 of us. And then by the time we finished grade 12, there was about 11 or 12 of us that made it all the way to the end. And there's maybe two or three people, if that, that can say confidently that they're fluent. Myself, I'm still on the fence of whether I consider myself fluent or not. Um, I go to Quebec, it's kind of like, mm, do I speak French? Um, but yeah, I'd just love to know your thoughts about how we can improve the curriculum and um, make it so that more people make it to the end and feel confident in their uh, French abilities and happy with the program as well. Sure. So I can definitely speak about that. Um, that's my thing. <laughs> so I just wanted to start off, to be, to be quite honest, many FSL programs perpetuate whiteness. Growing up in early extended French, I was conditioned to think that French is a white person only language, as most of the materials I read and I was exposed to were of white people, like Le Petit Nicolas, I'm sure you probably know that one. It wasn't until I got to Glendon that I was really exposed to different countries of La Francophonie, like Morocco, Haiti, Mauritius, etc. And I met racialized French speakers. It was so foreign to me to see an Asian identified Francophone speak French because of the single dominant Eurocentric narrative of France and Quebec that I learned growing up. And while there are a lot of great educators who are including BIPOC representation in their FSL classrooms, many are still stuck to the traditional method, la méthode traditionnelle, of schooling, and they're using very Eurocentric resources. 
So I think this could be a reason why that many of those students didn't stay until the end, because French must have been, you know, so focused on grammar and memorization. So like I said earlier, I was at a school this year where almost all my students were racialized. The school was in a lower income neighborhood in Scarborough. The students read outdated Eurocentric texts from the 1900s, and they literally had to fill in grammar tables with verb conjugations. So the program was pretty much grammar memorization and reading old, li old literature. They were shocked when I told them that I am Guyanese and they saw me speak French. And when I told them I grew up in Scarborough because the majority of their French teachers were white, they complained to me that they hated French because it was boring and they didn't see any relevance of French class to them. One of them actually told me they use French class as a spare. And like I said, when I asked my grade 12 classes who was going to continue in French after high school, they laughed in my face. So obviously I was heartbroken and upset about these comments, but at the same time, I wasn't surprised at all, given the complaints about the program. So for me, improving French immersion, it means making them more equitable and relevant to marginalized students. It's about disrupting the status quo of the dominant narrative ingrained in FSL programs. So in addition to being an actively anti-racist educator, my FSL program is built upon culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy. So that is a term from Gloria Ladson-Billings, who came up with that. And um, I urge you all to see the Capacity Building series document for more information on this. As teachers, we need to uplift and make space for the student voice. We need to recognize the diverse identities and let students speak their truth. We need to build community in the classroom. Through an asset-based approach, we must recognize that learners come in with a wealth of knowledge and we must use that information to build our content, to build our curriculum so we can work collaboratively with our students. You know, as one of my course directors told me this year, as a teacher, we need to be the student of our students. So, Here's an example of how I exemplified some of those ideas in my practice this year. So I volunteered during the COVID-19 emergency remote learning, and I continued it voluntarily for my placements. And it was the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I tossed out my plans for the remainder of the course. Instead, I created a small unit on the BLM movement to finish our course. I had students reflect on their prior knowledge of the movement, then do some research on the movement, explore the BLM principles and reflect on how those principles are used in the, their students' own community of their choice, whether that be religious, cultural, etc. Then I had them describe how they will be an effective ally, or if they are Black, what they look for in an ally. I had them make a collage of social media posts and media related to the movement. You know, it could be Black businesses, promoting Black authors, etc. I made clear that I do not want to see media of Black people being killed as their bodies are sacred, and that should not be normalized. I had them criticize and analyze what they've been seeing on social media in order to move from this notion of performative activism, posting a Black box on Instagram that literally does nothing, to becoming actively anti-racist. Through this, of course, they had to apply the language structures learned in the course. Um, so as you can tell, this is an example of a work that is culturally relevant and responsive. It is an example of anti-racism and equity work in an FSL classroom that disrupts the dominant narrative. I had many Black students emailing me thanking me for this, but 
as an anti-oppressive educator, it is my obligation to do this work. And, you know, one of my colleagues um, in teachers college, one of the teacher candidates, she told me, she's like, you know, I agree with the BLM movement, but I would never talk about it in a French classroom because it's way too controversial. controversial. Well, my response to that is if you are a teacher and you're unwilling to talk about equity movements or to talk about BLM and the injustices in the world that marginalized folks face, then you need to find another profession, <laughs> quite frankly, because these experiences and identities are valid and it's important that we talk about them in French class. And what I do in French class, and I'll speak a bit more later, is I use non-traditional teaching techniques. So talking about relevant things, having students work in groups, having students watch videos, having them get up out of their feet, walk around the classroom, do action-oriented activities, and then apply the grammar to specific context. So it's not about memorization. It's not about reading books from the 1900s anymore. If I can jump in for a moment, I think um, you touched on, um, you know, some really, really important topics. And I want the main, main thing that I like I'm sort of taking away is that um, there is this, you know, underlying idea or notion that, you know, there is a lot of elitism in education and in the education space and in the education system. And uh, we haven't really talked much about, um, you know, people who don't have access to education at all let alone, you know, we're talking about you're in the education system and you have, you know, your own battles that you're dealing with. But, um, you know, what about, um, you know, low uh, students who don't have the means to pursue education, um, mature students, um, you know, anything that sort of fits outside of the norm. I also uh, saw this other comment about how a lot of teachers during, you know, the pandemic now are switching over to online e-learning. And I know, Behan, that you have a lot of, you know, your area of work is focused on this. Maybe you want to speak about this a little bit later. But, um, uh, you know, that a lot of teachers are expecting their students to have their cameras on while in Zoom classes or online e-learning classes. And a lot of students do not feel comfortable with that because that's really exposing their home situation. And, um, you know, there might be discomfort with once what one student is experiencing at home and what another student has. And, you know, sharing that might invite an opportunity for other, um, you know, uncomfortable scenarios and situations. And beyond that, I think it's also just, I was reflecting, I think it's also crazy that a lot of teachers expect or docked marks from students when they give presentations, if they fidget or if they, you know, if they um, stutter or, you know, if they have memorized uh, something completely the way it should be, you know, and that just is another reflection of other ableist principles in teaching that we sort of oftentimes forget and overlook as, you know, your, you know, the ideal perfect able-bodied student that can stand still and speak at a perfect pace and not get an anxiety attack or not stutter because you might have a speaking impediment or something along those lines. Um, and so moving on to the online um, e-learning platform, which will be sort of a, um, I guess, uh, common experience for most students who are going to be returning to school next week uh, in September for um, the pandemic, um, I'm wondering then if you have any thoughts or suggestions about that and how Scarborough Families for Public Education and the work that you do um, is focusing on a you know safe September, so to speak. I do know that um, 
you are an advocate against um, e-learning, Behan. Um, uh, but I'm just wondering if you have any other thoughts, because it seems like it's going in that direction for many students, and how there might be a sort of, uh, I guess, compromise or a, um, yeah, I guess the word would be some sort of compromise or uh, alternate plan for that return to school. I definitely am not against e-learning, um, but I am against marketization of education where e-learning is playing a central role. Um, and I think there are people who say that it's how you use the tool, but I vehemently disagree because that's the same argument we make about specialized schools. There is, um, but we're, I mean, that was at the time my position when we were discussing mandatory online learning, I think it's anyone who even, um, anyone who supports um, online learning understands that it actually costs as much as in-person instruction and it requires some in-person supports. What we're doing right now is for a better lack of a better term, it's bananas. We are trying, this is not e-learning. We are, we are there for high school students, they're basically recreating the, all of the limitations of the traditional system. And you've pointed at some of the policing measures that take place. Online learning is going to be no different. We are going to penalize students who, um, who like Austin are traveling quite far and are in, uh, unable to log in in the one and a half hours that they have to get home. Um, we're, we're going to uh, be forcing students to go on video because there are no protocols that prevent teachers from doing that. So teachers who have always policed um, students because they have some mistaken sense of what it looks like to learn is going to play out in the same ways online. Um, what's going to be interesting is seeing the kinds of, um, you know, the ways that that curriculum and the way that racism plays out in curriculum, how that's going to come to the fore will be interesting. Um, just today, somebody had sent me a message with a screenshot of training that they received um, from the Crisis Prevention Institute that used racist stereotypes and was asking me how to proceed with it. But we're going to see a lot more of these instances. Um, what I think is really important in proceeding um, is, you know, it's still a matter of uh, when we think about digital divides and access and geography at this point, there are um, communities, particularly First Nation communities, who do not have the infrastructure to access an essential service and that if it, an educate when you talk about accessing education education is a right and what um what are we being held accountable to if we're not meeting the needs of and what, what are we saying to communities that don't have access um good luck right they're doing they're, they are often managing with um paper packages. So I expect to see um, widening inequality. I expect to see a poor rollout of online learning because people who are organizing it don't know what questions to ask and don't want to ask people who are going to tell them that they need to make investments in, in order to succeed. 
So we really need to make sure that we're vigilant and the work that we're doing at Scarborough Families for Public Education is all about ensuring that we have a on the ground and digital strategy working with other groups across the GTA and Ontario, and in fact, building solidarities across Canada with um, organizations, not just working with education, but also um, for uh, you know a fair wage um, to ensure that there are sick days that are accessible to everybody. All of this is going to be core to a successful and safe school reopening. Um, I was actually just going to ask you that as a last uh, closing question, um, but I think you've provided a, a pretty great summary of what uh, you know a safe school and a quote unquote educated city would look like. And I, you know, I use that term sparingly because I don't want to to sound elitist at all. But you know, um, maybe I can extend the question to Austin and Joy as a final closing remarks. But um, you know, what does an ideal city with access to education look like and how is it built and uh, what is the social atmosphere like? And, um, you know, what do you envision for that? So I guess I'll kind of end off. And, and as you know, my focus on this podcast has been French. So as we know, French immersion programs are notorious for their elitist status. I left some resources such as Dr. Nancy Wise's article entitled Access to Spec Ed for Exceptional Students in French Immersion and Equity Issue. As we know, students with special needs, English language learners, new immigrants, they're often kicked out of French immersion programs and told that they would be better off in the regular program. This leads to the elitist status where there is an overrepresentation of middle class white students in immersion whose parents have money to get their kids private French tutors or lessons on the side. And then there's also the article by Dr. Perrick Al, The Social Construction of Giftedness which also covers racial inequities in the gifted program. So obviously, uh, like I said, the elitism is a problem in all specialized programs. So in terms of French, I want to say that everyone, tout le monde, everyone can learn French and we should never rob any student the opportunity to learn the language. Differentiated instruction and universal design for learning are solutions to help all learners succeed in FSL programs. Teachers need to use those concepts when designing lessons to ensure that they can accommodate all learners. Writing an agenda on the board, chunking information and projects into smaller pieces, highlighting key words, using word walls, sentence starters, vocabulary posters, les affiches around the classroom, Images to represent vocabulary, concrete, tangible objects such as manipulative, think, pair, share, breaking up classroom time to keep student interest and engagement. Get them out of their seats from sitting there for an entire 70 minutes. Let them walk around the room, socialize with their peers. These are some basic ideas to help all learners succeed that represent a progressive model of schooling. These ideas or what I use in my practice, and they may help all learners. They may be made with some learners in mind, but in fact, they're actually beneficial to all learners. So I've included the ministry documents, including students with special needs in FSL programs, as well as welcoming English language learners into FSL programs. And I think teachers need to make equity the base of their practice and maintain high expectations for all learners while providing supports for them some that I've just listed. So just a quick example, I had a student with ADHD this year and she vented to me that she hates French because of grammar. 
I validated her feelings. I did not dismiss them. I shifted her perspective by explaining the importance of why we learn passé composé, past tense in French. I invited her to come to tutoring at lunch, and together we color-coded and we broke down the grammar into chronological steps. And we played charades. We acted out each word so she would learn the meanings of the verb. She enjoyed these approaches, and it turns out she didn't hate French. She just needed different ways of learning the grammar concepts. So that is, those are some ways that we can make our programs more equitable. Um, not kicking out people from immersion, encouraging all learners. And I just want to give a shout out to my friend Natasha Faru from Peel, who created a website of BIPOC resources in French that I got to contribute to. So that, that's a great resource out there for any FSL educator. I guess for me, um, to make it more equitable, I really like um, reimagining schools as um, community um, hubs, community centers, um, redefining what we consider education and educators. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, it's like really out of the box thinking, but, you know, it's been incorporated in some areas of the city. And so when we draw in the community um, into schools and, you know, and hopefully i'm hoping that like you know it also makes educators you know um quote unquote to take a look at um you know who is providing what like who is to say like you know um am i you know as part of my indigenous culture we learn a lot from elders we sit there you know it doesn't matter if you're 40 or 60 if an elder's telling a story you sit there like you're in kindergarten and you listen but you learn you gain so much wisdom and so and of course many of these elders aren't considered educators because they don't have a master's degree or anything like that so um, i want to kind of revisualize schools as community hubs and incorporate the education and wisdom from the community as well as you know i guess traditional education um to a degree but you know just reshifting everything so that you know we can start thinking about education um in more equitable terms and valuing um more words than what just a quote-unquote experts are saying even as we talk in equity work we see like you know the experts and they're like phds and administrators but you know it's like where are the other people who are involved in education i want to hear from the custodians i want to hear from you know the school secretaries the lunchroom supervisors and so um if we can kind of move like towards ending our you know traditional colonial models um, of education, I feel that, you know, we can open up so many doors into, you know, what equitable education looks like. Thank you so much, um, Joy, Behan, and Austin for all of the insight that you provided and for sharing your time and resources. Um, I really, really enjoyed the conversation and I felt that I have I took a lot away from it and um, I hope our listeners did as well. Um, we will be linking all of the resources um, and, um, you know, articles and studies that we reference in the podcast Um on the website. Um, so if there's anything you want to refer to um, or have a look at again, um, you can find them there. Um, and yes, thank, thank you. you again for sharing great. space with us. Thank you for having yes, us. Yes, thank this you so much. Experience. I really enjoyed the discussion today. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. 
If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.